Hey, my name's Daniel Sanderson, and I'm the associate pastor here at Ridge Church, and I am so honored and excited to be able to share with you the living word of God, the word that's going to hopefully transform and shape your hearts and be able to have the Holy Spirit convict something in you today. So I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. We are in our sovereign series. Jonathan has walked us up all the way to chapter 2, verses 10. So I'm going to continue from there. So we'll read through it. I'll pray and we'll jump right in. So open up your Bibles to verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you the prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Lord, we give you this next 30, 35 minutes. Um, I pray that the living word, your, your word, the Bible speaks to the hearts of people watching today. I pray that the Holy Spirit either convicts, challenges, encourages, answers questions, brings peace, brings joy, and ultimately communicates what the gospel is to the people today. God, we trust you, that you're the one that's going to speak through these words. We love you, and we give you this next chunk of time. Amen. So initially, as I looked at the passage that I've been given, I was like, oh man, gee, like Jonathan, you get the exciting parts. You get the birth of Moses. You get Moses and with the miraculous supernatural protection of God the Father as he's put in the basket going down the river gets taken by Pharaoh's family but then given back to his mother and then brought back to the to the royal family and then you he gets the burning bush he gets the big call the burning bush where God calls Moses back to Egypt to deliver God's people and I'm looking at this I'm like I get the passage or the seasons of Moses life where He's rejected, he makes mistakes, he hits his major low, and then he chills in the desert for 40 years. I'm like, right away, I'm like, oh, I get this passage. But then I tried to think, why do I kind of like get triggered when I look at this passage? Why do I not get excited when looking at this passage? And I started to realize that this passage is a reminder for many, many tough, tough and frustrating seasons in my life that this is a painful reminder of the dry seasons in my life where I felt like nothing was going for me, that there was frustration, that there was pain, that
that I felt insecure, that I felt lonely. And the thing is, I can remember back to a time where it was in between jobs. I was working at a church. It was probably last year of university. I was at this amazing church. I was an intern there, and they loved me. I loved them. I was building great community there. The church was moving forward, and they're like, hey, we would love to hire you full-time after you're done school, after the summer in September. I was like, that's great. I'm so excited to be a part of this. And so after school, I had, uh, had planned a trip to go to Europe with my wife, Des and some friends, and so we had it all planned out because I knew I had a job lined up in September. But in June, they sat me down. They're like, hey, we've got some tough news where we realize that we actually have a bunch of building expenses, a building construction costs that we have to go through. And so can you wait a year? We can't quite afford your salary. And I was devastated because it's like, oh, I, I wanted this role, but I just got married. I just came out of school. I needed to work. I needed to make money. And so I quickly jumped into jump or looking at multiple different interviews at different churches and they went well. And then I went off to Europe. And while I was in Europe, I kept getting response after response of, hey, you were great. We would have loved to hire you, but we needed someone to start right now. So we had to go with someone else. And so I came home after Europe, just totally disappointed. And it was a two month span of feeling in a dry season, the, the, the terrible in between the waiting season of God, what are you going to do in my life? You've called me into ministry, but yet you're not opening any doors. You're closing doors. I feel insecure. Am I supposed to be doing this? Was I wrong? Did I make a mistake? I was angry at God because why are you having me in this season when you've called me to go into ministry? But after I took time to study and pray into this passage, I realized that this passage should be one of the biggest encouragements to anyone that might feel like they're in a a super low season or a dry season of waiting and feeling like nothing good is happening. That this passage gives us a glimpse into a secret ingredient, a secret ingredient that God instills during these painful seasons into our life to shape us into what we're supposed to be and what we're called to do. And it's foundational for our relationship with Jesus Christ. And what we will learn is that this Moses, this Moses of Exodus 2, has to and must precede the Moses that comes in Exodus 14, the moment where Moses delivers the Israelites out of the slavery of Egypt on the way to the promised land. And the way that I see this to be true is that we're going to actually look through this passage, but we're going to look at it through a filter. And this filter is called the three stages of a godly leader. But I think this applies to any Christian, anyone wanting to follow and fall more and more in love with Jesus. And the three stages in this filter is stage number one, you think you are something. Stage number two, you realize you are nothing. And stage number three is you realize God makes something out of nothing. So that's the filter that we're going to look through this passage in today. And I'm hopefully you'll be able to see why we're kind of using this filter. And so stage one, thinking we are something, because this is Moses. Moses walks through each of these three stages. God walks him through each and every one. And so stage one is verse 11 to 13. So this is when Moses, he's 40 years old at this time. So he's, he's been raised in the palace. He's been raised by Pharaoh and his family. And he goes and he's, he's starting to go and see his people, the Hebrew people, the people that he knows that's his root. That's where he's come from, these Hebrew people. And he wants to see how they're doing, what they're dealing with. And he goes and he witnesses this one Hebrew man being abused 
by this Egyptian slave driver. And he goes, and in a fit of emotion, he goes and strikes down this Egyptian. He hides him in the sand, and he goes right away, and he goes to the Hebrew people, and he goes and he tries to help them out. He tries to deliver them. So we know from what Jonathan talked about last week, he walked up to Moses being handed back to Pharaoh's daughter, to to Pharaoh's family. But we know that there's about 35 years in between that moment and verse 11. There's not too many details of what went on, but what we do know is that we do know that Moses is starting in a place where he is a self-confident man in a position of privilege. That we know that he was nursed by his own mom probably until around the age of five max. So from the age of five to 40, he was in the royal household. And so what that would mean for him is that he was treated like royalty. He was part of one of the most powerful families in the world at the time, and he received the best education of all time. The education system in Egypt was insane. It was so high level. The kind of inventions they created, the things that they established, just mind-blowing. You look at mummification. You can go to museums today, and you can still see bodies preserved from thousands of years ago. You can look at the pyramids and the engineering it took to actually design and build them. They started to write. They used papyrus as paper. They started to build the first clocks and calendars. And one of the things that you ladies might appreciate the most is that they invented cosmetic makeup. They invented tons of different things, and he had that kind of education. And the thing is, he possibly could have even been the pride of Egypt because scholars say or believe that Pharaoh at the time didn't believe he could have a son of his own. Maybe it was just for that time where they didn't believe that he could have a son in that period of time. And so Moses was potentially being groomed to even become the next Pharaoh. That he grew up seeing so much might, so much power in Egypt, and was probably spoken into his life where he clearly believed that he was someone special, that he was somebody, that he was something He had wealth at his fingertips, power, position, education, charisma. He had everything going for him that he felt special. He was a someone. And you might come to wonder, how did Moses go from prince of Egypt to striking down an Egyptian and becoming a murderer? You can tell there's a mindset shift somewhere along the way. That's something brewing deep down inside, bubbling to the surface And what this was that Moses was starting to realize that there is a calling place on his life by God to do something. He was starting to realize his calling to become a deliverer. And the reason why I believe so is that there's three different reasons, three different points. That because until he was five, he was actually with his actual mother when he was being nursed. That she would probably in those formative years be teaching him about his people, about the Hebrew people, about their family, about the God that has promised them to make them a big nation and has protected them. So he knows his roots. He knows what God's calling this nation to do. And so he will always know where he's from. And the second reason is that he can look at his own personal history. He was probably told the stories of God's miraculous uh, protection over him while he was a baby when he was in hiding and then placed in the basket on the river, that he didn't drown, that he was taken in by Pharaoh's family and not killed, but there was compassion and mercy for him, that he got to spend time with his mom and then given back and then grew up in royalty with everything he could ever imagine. Like, God clearly had his hand over me 
He must think I'm special. He must have something planned for me, something big. And the third reason is if you look at Acts 7, you see that they talk about that he thought that the Hebrews would understand that he has come to deliver them. So in his head, he was like, well, it makes sense. They should know that I'm a deliverer. So we can tell that Moses had an idea of the calling that was being placed on his life and he was wanting to step into it. So he sensed that he his calling to be a deliverer. And he felt like he'd been groomed for 40 years. And in our minds, he had everything to become an amazing leader. Like if we looked at him like, you're in the perfect position to deliver these people out of slavery because of everything that he had at his fingertips. But the issue is, is that but because of his arrogance and his ego, he jumped prematurely into the calling to fulfill his destiny. He created a plan in his mind, one that made sense to the way that man thinks and a way that man plans. And he saw himself as the hero. He saw himself as the key player because he was something. And I know that we can relate to that. We right away think of other people like, oh, I know the person that thinks they're hot stuff. We can think of something like, oh, they think that they've got everything all together, that they're going to fix everything. Like even in ministry, I can, I can look at myself and I can see that I can be like, oh, I'm not going to burn out. I can do this because I've experienced this. I've been trained in this. I've handled it before. My marriage is going to be fine. That I'm not going to burn out. Don't worry. I'm good. I've got this. That's when I make myself the key player, the hero of the story, that nothing bad can happen, that I have this on my own. I've seen people walk into ministry to be like, I'll fix all these issues. I'll fix your problems because I've got this, 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 and this. And they come in and they do it under their own power, their own might, and it just falls apart. The thing is, Moses had so, Moses had so much pride and so much arrogance that he, even though he knew that he was doing something wrong, he still went ahead. And the reason why we know he, he knew that he was doing something wrong is because it says he looked left he looked right, and when he saw no one, that's when he struck down the Egyptian. I know that when you look left and right and look to see if anyone's watching, you know you're doing something wrong because my son, Lyndon, he's three, and he'll walk into the room, and he'll, like, look for Des and I, and he'll look around, and he'll get a smile if he can't see us, and we're watching from a distance. He doesn't know we're there, and he walks over to the kitchen. He grabs, like, the peanut butter jar he puts on the counter, and he grabs, like, the sharpest knife possible, and we just still watch. We're probably bad parents because we're just watching, not taking the knife away, but he's, like, smiling. He's reaching up, and he's digging in to the peanut butter, and he's eating the peanut butter off the knife, and he's just going for it, and then he looks around again, and he still doesn't see us, and he, so he steps down and he like puts on the ground and he smiles and he starts taking his hand and just taking the peanut butter out. He knows he's not supposed to do it and that's why he's looking left and right. But Lyndon thinks he's impenetrable because no one's watching. The thing is that with Moses, he truly thinks so highly of himself that he thinks he can get off scot-free. That he has a sense of being impenetrable. If Moses knew it or not, he had just committed an act that would sever the tie with the aristocracy with the palace, and with the throne. And then we, we walk in to stage two, which is verse 14 and 15, where he starts to realize that he is nothing. Because this is where the downfall begins. That he doesn't realize that he's just severed the tie with the palace and the throne until he meets the two Hebrews that are in conflict with each other. He goes and he says, it doesn't matter that I've murdered someone. He's like, it's okay. I'm impenetrable. I can do this. I'm the savior I've got this. And he goes and he says, why are you fighting? Let me help you. Let me save you. And their reaction was so jarring to him where he, they say, you're not my prince and you're not my judge. 
Like, are you going to kill us like the other Egyptian? And he realizes that in this moment, this is a huge moment for him because they are rejecting his deliverance, his help. They're saying, we don't want anything to do with you. And this is where Moses realizes that his failure in the attempt to deliver has now just lost him everything. He quickly turns from a proud, intelligent, and confident man to a scared and embarrassed little child, and he runs away. He couldn't have felt lower. And he runs away to Midian. Midian is a land that is east of Egypt. It's on the other side, or the east side of the Gulf of Arabia. And at this point, he has nothing. He's lost his status. He's lost his home. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his power. He's lost his Egyptian family. He's not accepted by uh, his, the Hebrew people. He was a total and utter outcast. That because of his pride and arrogance and him taking everything on himself, he went in a downward spiral. He hit an absolute low where it says, and he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by the well. And so he's sitting there, head in his hands, broken. But these two stages had to happen to lead to verse 16 all the way to verse 22. This is stage three. Stage three is the point where God takes nothing and makes it something. This season in Midian is the priority in this passage where we look at it And it seems like a dry season, but this is the season that God wanted Moses to walk through because he's like, perfect. This is where I'm going to mold you and shape you and pick up the broken pieces. And I'm going to send you off to do what I've called you to do. And so while he goes to Midian, all we know is that the way it starts is that these seven daughters come to the well and they they want to gather water for themselves and for their flock. And Moses, completely broken, still tries to help these daughters out. When the shepherds come and they push them to the side and say, no, we're going to get the water, he stands up for them. But for the first time ever, he stands up from a lowly place and he goes and he serves them. And he serves in the water and he protects them. And these daughters, they go back to their father and they tell them why they're back early. That this amazing Egyptian guy stood up for us and protected us and he gave us water and gave water to our flock. And the father's like, wait, you left him there? Girls, we live in a place of sand and rocks. And you're saying there's an amazing Egyptian man there that protected you and you left him there? Good men don't fall off of trees here. Go get him. Who knows if you'll find another good one? Go grab the man and bring him here. And so Moses comes and he offers him food and he accepts him into the family. And then he offers his daughter Zipporah, and, and Moses and Zipporah get married, and they have a son, and they name the son Gershom, meaning a stranger there. Which that name is a key important insight into the mind of Moses, where it truly indicates how he feels in this season. He is content, but he sees himself as an alien in a foreign land, and he doesn't feel fully at home. And this is just for, isn't for a short time. This Midian season, this stage three, would last 40 years, a long, long time. And so what we see is that Moses does go through stages, all three stages of becoming a godly leader. But I think it's really funny that Moses had 40 years in the palace, where in with our mindsets, he had everything that he needed to be a deliverer. And he goes and he tries to step into it with his own power and his own might, and he fails miserably. 
But we do know where the story goes after this passage. We know the burning bush is coming where God calls him back to Egypt and the plagues come and he brings the Israelites out of Egypt and God splits the sea and they go through and he starts to lead them to the promise. And we know that is coming. So why didn't God allow it to happen when he was 40 and when he first tried to deliver God's people? It's because this, these 40 years in the desert were crucial for Moses to be shaped into what God wanted him to be. God's like, you, Moses, need to go through this season. That the Moses of Exodus 2 cannot precede, or needed to precede Moses of Exodus 14. But the question is, because this relates directly to us as well, is that what is that thing that God wants to instill in us in that season, in that dry, frustrating, painful season? Why do we have to go through it? What is that thing? And that thing that God wants to instill in every single one of our hearts, the people that want to follow Jesus in his footsteps and love him, is humility. That's what he wants to put into our lives in that Midian season. It's the key ingredient that God shapes into our lives. It is the quality that distinguishes a Christian and and clearly something that God wants to see in his people. And if we look at this passage, we see two examples of how it illustrates what humility can do and the importance it has in the life of a Jesus follower. So first, no surprise, the first example is Moses. Because Moses is a perfect, perfect example of someone that had it all together, that seemed like he had it all together. He's the one that was full of pride, full of arrogance, that felt like, I've got this, I can fully do it on my own. I have this calling, I'm going to jump into it, and I'm going to do it on my own. And we see really quickly that when he tries to do it on his own, when there's no humility whatsoever, everything fails. Everything just blows up in his face. And it's a spiral down and down and down till he gets his, the ego and the arrogance just kicked out of him where he's sitting at the well and he has absolutely nothing. But this prideful man, this self-confident man had to go through this painful season of being brought down to feeling like he was nothing because this is the point where he was able to open his hands and say, God, I am nothing. I cannot do it on my own. I need you. I don't know what you have for me. Maybe I'm just going to stay in the desert for forever and this is all my life is, but literally I'm not going to try it on my own anymore. Because in a time like this, it changed his heart to be more attentive to God's voice and to actually be more obedient. And he realized that he couldn't do it on his own. And it wasn't a short time. It wasn't like it's a day, a week, one year. It was 40 years, 40 painful years. So when he got called out of the desert back to Egypt, he was 80. I have a hard time waiting for just like waiting in front of the microwave for my coffee to reheat for the fifth time. I, have impa- I don't have patience enough for that. I don't have patience to watch a full sports game with intermissions and commercials. I want to record it so I can just fast forward all the time. So if I can't even have patience in that, think about going through such a painful season for such a long time. That would be almost soul crushing. But the thing is, the reason why God, I know that God is sovereign is because God takes what we hate the most, the seasons that we want to throw away, the seasons that we feel have no worth and is a waste of our time, and he takes that and he makes it into something beautiful. And that's the same in your life. There's an amazing quote by C.S. Lewis that we'll throw up on the screen. 
where it says we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what he's saying is that God uses pain as a megaphone. Because the thing is, in in our lives, in our weeks, in our day-to-day, if nothing's going wrong, everything's la-ti-da, we don't pray as much. We don't run to him as much. We don't cry out to him as much. We don't have time in solitude with him as much. We don't worship as much because we're like, we've got this. There's just no issues. Why do I need to go to God? We rely on him less when everything's just fine and dandy. But the thing is, so God's like, no, pain, I'm using it to draw your attention. Because think about it. If you have a stomach ache, all of your attention gets drawn to your stomach where you're like, you're hunched over. You're nervous about, you don't want to go out. There's so much pain. You're not thinking about anything else. You're worried about having to go to the bathroom. It draws your attention to your stomach. And so the thing is, is God uses pain as a megaphone to be like, hey, Look at me, I'm here, my arms are wide open, run to me in those times because I've got you. I'm going to pick up those broken pieces and I'm going to make make you whole and I'm going to show you a life that you could have never expected and I'm going to use you for amazing things, but I need you to run to me, I need you to rely on me, I need you to trust me. And he uses pain as a megaphone and so because he knows that Moses is going to do something crazy so he needed those 40 years to develop and to have that intimacy with Moses where he's walking alongside of him, shaping and molding his heart. And I know that I've mentioned that these dry seasons are a blessing, but I know it doesn't feel like a blessing. I know that we avoid them, we hate them, and it's tough. Because I know humility, it isn't easy. It doesn't come naturally to us. You think about it. If Jesus is the example of humility, and we're supposed to be humble, we fail at that all the time. Even pastors, pastors are in the spotlight a lot of the time. But if you look at Jesus, he hid from the crowds. Students, they thirst for knowledge to elevate themselves, to equip themselves, to try to be better than everyone else. But you look at Jesus, he came from a lowly birth and he had very little education. We take so much pride in our homes and the money we put into making them beautiful and extravagant, but Jesus had no place to lay his head. It's not natural for us to want to be humble. And we, we make a mistake because we look at this Midian season like Moses just had to hang out for 40 years with less stress. It's just a time of waiting. Just deal with it. But we couldn't be more mistaken because not only was it a time of waiting, it was a, t- it was a time of the hardest work that Moses would ever have to put in in any season of his life. Waiting is work. It's physical work. You look, he was pampered for the first 40 years of his life, but when he was in Midian, he became a shepherd. He became a father. He became a husband. He had to put the work in. It was the most work he'd ever had to do. But not only was it physical hard work, or physically hard work, it was hard work for his soul and his heart because God was molding and shaping it and putting pressure and building something great. And the thing is, we can probably recall our own well season where we hit our lowest points. Mine, because I don't think I've shared this with you guys yet, mine is a little bit embarrassing because it would be seen as something as a blessing. But when, when we found out about Lyndon, about Dez's pregnancy, my reaction wasn't great. He was a surprise, a lovely surprise is what people told us. But I was not happy because I wasn't unhappy because we were going to have a kid, but it meant what I would have to give up. I would have to give up my free time, 
my pri- change my priorities. I wouldn't be able to do ministry in the same way. I cared so much about my ministry career, about what I thought God was calling me to do, that I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do ministry in the same capacity when I have a kid. And I was mad and I was angry. I felt sick to my stomach. I didn't want it to happen. I thought it wasn't real. I tried to like just throw it to the side. And month after month after month, my heart didn't change. And God like changed my heart because it's supposed to be a blessing. I know I have friends that can't have a kid and it's heartbreaking. So make me fall in love with this child. Change my heart. And this was about six weeks before like the due date. But the thing is that Des, she had placenta previa. And long story short, it just means that the exit while Linda would be birthed was blocked. And there's a 0.00001% chance that that blockage would break. But then if that would happen, Des would bleed out and die. And Linda would have oxygen cut off to his brain and he would die. And about five weeks before the scheduled C-section, my friend Michael comes over and he's going to hang out. And all of a sudden, we, he's like, did you hear something? I was like... No, I didn't hear something. He's like, I think I heard your name. I was like, oh, Des is napping. She's really pregnant, tired all the time. She's probably napping. Or she's wanting toilet paper. Maybe she's in the bathroom. So like, I'll go check. And I go up and I hear her say, Daniel. And I'm like, oh, shoot, this sounds bad. And I run up and I see her. She's bleeding out in the bathroom on the floor. The worst case scenario happened. And I'm fumbling and I'm phoning the midwife. And the, and the midwife's like, you're stupid. Phone 911 right now. So I phone 911 and the fire trucks come and the ambulances come. And in our three-level townhouse, we push all the furniture to the side. They bring this wheelchair on skis and they go and they kick me out of like the place. And they say, we can't have you around here. We can, I can tell it's not bad. They're like, stay with us. Stay with us. Like, oh, we're losing her. We're losing her. And they get her on this wheelchair and they slide her down the stairs and they take her in the ambulance. And I ride with my friend Michael and we go to the hospital and I go to the front desk. I'm like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. My wife is dying, but she's also pregnant and I'm freaking out. I'm dropping my keys and I'm shaking. And they'd lead me to this area, like, you need to sign all this paperwork. And so I have 30 sheets, and I'm sign- I don't even know what I'm signing. I'm just signing away. Who knows? And then, the- and then they take me, they give me scrubs, and they have me sit in this hallway, this pristine white hallway, and they tell me, just so you know, there's a 50-50 chance that you'll be a single guy tomorrow. And so with that news, I'm sitting alone in this chair, which is like Moses sitting at the well, broken. I've never felt so small so insignificant, so lonely, so powerless. It was the worst feeling of all time. I literally, I was like, there's nothing I can do. There's no way out of this. And I remember weeping. I mean, God, clearly I don't trust you enough. Clearly I want to do things on my own. But God, I just say, if you keep them alive, I will do anything you want me to do. I will make sure that Lyndon does anything you want him to do. I'm sorry that I've been selfish. I'm sorry that I feel like I have to do ministry in the way that I need to do it, but I need to trust you. And so the good news is that Lyndon, after the C-section, he's good. They give him to me and they're walking me to go show him to the family. I show him to the family. They're like, hey, we need to go to a different room. So I go and they sit me down in a different room. They're like, hey, we just want to let you know that your wife isn't doing too well. We have the best people on it, but we don't know if she's going to make it. If she comes through those doors, she's good. If she doesn't, it's not good. And so all I remember is I sat there with Lyndon, looking up at me with his eyes, weeping, because I might be a single father that day. I don't know what to do. I don't feel capable. I feel incompetent. I feel scared. But my God, you're trying to do something in my life in this painful day, this painful season. And all I did was like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to take my phone and I put on it as well. 
And I just cried to it as well with Lyndon and held him. I'm so thankful and so blessed that Des came through those doors and they're both healthy and well. You'll see them running around the church and you know all is good and well. But I don't know what your Midian season looks like. I don't know what you're going through right now, but maybe you're in a season of waiting. Maybe you're not in a place that you want to be. You're not, you've been praying for so long for something to change, for something to come. Maybe if it's a job, if it's a relationship, if it's healing. I don't know. And you're like, I'm tired of waiting. Maybe it's not a week. Maybe it's been five years and you're still waiting. I encourage you that this might be your Midian season, this stage three, where God is shaping your heart and teaching something and giving you humility where you can actually go to him and be like, I trust you with my life. I'm not going to hold on to control. I'm not going to hold so tightly that I don't trust you. He wants you to let go and he wants you to rely on him in this season. Maybe you feel like you're past your prime. The thing is, Moses was 80 when God called him back after the desert. You're not past your prime. God is shaping something in you. And you just have to look around and see what he's calling you to do next. Maybe you're experiencing the consequences of your failures. Maybe you've done something so wrong, so bad, that you don't think you can ever be forgiven for it. And you feel so painful. You're like Moses. You're like, I'm not coming back from this. God wants to shape in your heart to be humble enough to admit that you hate what you've done wrong. That you can go to and be like, forgive me. Wipe me clean so I can be who you've made me to be. And the one thing that I want to tell you is that Jesus understands and will walk alongside of you. I've noticed that. I've seen that in my own life. But you might think I'm lying. But let me explain because in verse 22, it says that he had, or she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And this is important because this signals that Moses has officially gotten to a point where he can relate to the people that he's supposed to deliver. That the Gershom means a stranger there. He finally understands what it feels to be like his fellow Hebrews. And this is important because the light bulbs all started going off for me because I realized that this is a theme that goes through the whole Old Testament of a rejected deliverer that leads all the way up to Jesus. And I'm like, oh, sweet. This is pointing to Jesus because every part of Scripture points to Jesus and the gospel every single time that this isn't just a dry season, but this is a season that we can look to Jesus and see what he had to go through for us. And we see the theme. We see Joseph being rejected by his brothers and being sent off in slavery to Egypt. You see what Moses had to go through as a rejected deliverer. You see what David had to go through as a rejected deliverer from Saul running for his life. His life was on the line. He was hiding. You look at how Israel split into two nations because they rejected the different kings and they go and they go into exile. And then you see like the, like Jeremiah, the prophet who's rejected and scorned all the time for sharing the message of God. It's just a a repeated theme over and over and over again. And the same thing happens with Jesus, where Jesus was a rejected deliverer. Because this passage foreshadows the better Jesus and what he had to go through. And this passage screams Jesus. This Moses story in this season mirrors what Jesus had to go through. Because you look at Moses, he started in the palace in royalty and he walked out to the Hebrews. He came down to get to their level to see what they were going through. Just like Jesus up in heaven, in royalty, on the throne, didn't have to, but decided to come down to earth to be fully man and fully God, to get on the same level of the people that he has come to save. Both Moses and Jesus were saved miraculously and supernaturally by God the Father as babies. 
They both were rejected multiple times. They both went into exile. Moses, we see here, he went to exile. Jesus went into the desert for different seasons. Moses, when he went into the desert, he had to become a servant. And he had to become a shepherd before he could do what God called him to do. Jesus came down to earth and guess what he did? He led by being a servant. He came to shepherd his people. They both had to go to extreme lows before they hit the climax of what they were called to do. You look at Moses and he hits this point before he gets called to go back to Egypt. And we look at Jesus before he was arrested. He's in the garden and he's praying to God the Father, being, please have there be a different way. He's so stressed that he's sweating blood. And that's the real thing. He was sweating blood. He went through the low of, lowest of low times before he could go and die on the cross and be that sacrifice for everyone. Because the thing is that the Christ who was despised, rejected by men, and who died with great shame must precede the Christ of the resurrection. And we see the Moses of Exodus 2 had to precede the Moses of Exodus 14. And this gives us peace. This should give you peace that you can be broken too because you need to be broken so that God can pick up the pieces and build you into something great for his namesake. That when we have to be humble and we go through these periods of suffering, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We're getting a taste of what he had to go through for us. And when I say he understands and you can trust him, you can believe it because he didn't have to do any of this, but he did this for you no matter though you try to take things in your own hands and you are filled with pride. And as I close, I've got one challenge for you guys because I haven't talked about the second example of humility in the story. And I want to highlight the Hebrew man that responded to Moses when he said, what's wrong? Can I help you? Can I deliver, deliver you? So what happens is he goes and Moses, or the Hebrew man says to Moses, you're not my prince, you're not my judge. I don't want anything to do with you. I do not trust you. I do not believe in you. I don't believe you're going to save me. I do not want to listen to your rules. I can do this on my own. And this is the same way that Jesus gets rejected even to this day. That this is an example of the dire consequences that come with not having humility. Not going through these seasons where God can instill humility into your heart and into your soul. Because it happened even in John 6, when Jesus is like, I'm the bread of life, and they didn't believe him, they didn't want him to be their prince or judge, and a lot of the disciples left. Even today, when Jesus is like, I am here to save you, we go to him, and we say, you're not our prince, and you're not our judge, because we have too much pride in our hearts. We are not willing to say, Jesus, we trust you, we let you take control, we are not enough. This could be anyone here at home, wherever you're watching this from. It could be just a part of your life. Maybe you're like, oh no, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I'll give him this part of my life. I like the comfort of church. I like my community. But I'm not going to give him my marriage. I'm not going to give him my relationships, my career, my sexuality. You're not the prince or judge over those areas of my life. I don't trust you with those. I'll trust you with these parts, but not the other. Or maybe... You still have so much pride in your heart that you are saying what the Hebrew said to Moses. You're saying that Jesus, no, I am good on my own. I do not trust you. You are not my prince. I am not loyal to you. You do not deserve it. 
I do not accept you. I don't, I'm not going to listen to your rules. And we reject him. But my heart breaks for you because you're going to try and do it on your own and you're going to fail over and over and over again. And all we see, all Jesus asks is he's done the work already. He just says, open your hands, get on your knees and say, I trust you. You're the Lord and Savior of my life. Heal me, save me, lead me, guide me. It is the best decision that you're ever going to make. Don't be like the Hebrew man that's too prideful to welcome Jesus and say, you are my prince, you are my judge. Lord, thank you for today. I pray that the Holy Spirit was able to convict the hearts of people watching. I pray that you were honored through this sermon. God, we love you. We accept you as our prince and our judge. We thank you that you are the ultimate example of humility. And we just want to follow in your footsteps. Amen.